Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, the Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, the Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, the Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Susan. How are you this evening? I am doing pretty well. In mm-hmm. So it appears that we asked Catherine to do too much, and she decided she could do nothing. 
Yeah, yeah. And she decided rather quickly. So here well, I am. No notice of any kind, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was kind of shocking. Yeah, yeah. Especially so here from I am. Someone who, had, who had so frequently said that she was here for me. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the complaints that I had to my parents, it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek complaint, was that neither of them was alcoholic and they had no alcoholic friends, so I had no experience of any kind in alcoholism or substance abuse. But, of course, as an adult, I have indeed encountered those people. I built a house. I had a wonderful house project. It was an all-women's house project, and we used no men, no power tools, and no synthetics. And I built it on someone else's land, actually land I had been living on for a while with a woman who, uh, I was her golden girl, and we got along so well. And I didn't realize that that one glass of wine that she had was perpetually filled from the gallon jugs, empty gallon jugs on her back porch. And overnight, she decided I was no longer the golden girl. I was the monster from hell and kicked me out. Mm-hmm. So I've seen people turn in that way, and every time I've seen people turn in that way, there's been something behind it, some alcohol or some drug or something that is um, causing um, that person to switch their view of reality. And uh, it leaves those of us um, who didn't know that was going to happen a little flabbergasted. But I am very happy to have you here. And, Be here. Uh, yeah. It's uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll see um where this takes us. I think that uh there's somebody else that's in in line to to come on the radio too. So, we'll see um but I feel good about being here and being here with the with with you and um you know, giving a little a little, uh, I feel like it was just so odd to, like, leave when all of, like, the quarantine took effect. And, <laughs> like, I didn't plan on that happening, like, for it to, to leave, like, right at that time. But, like, so it just catapulted like, me into, like, so much change at one time. I hear you. <laughs> and, of course, I cannot find um, who sent me the email about um, who we are um, interviewing tonight. Here, I'll forward it to you right now. I have it right here. Wonderful. I'm sure someone did send it to me. But um, I have looked through everybody's name, and I haven't been able to come up with that email. I know that next week we are going to get to talk to um, somebody that we wanted to talk to before who runs the Peyote Church. Yeah, yeah. So that's coming up maybe next. <laughs> and then it's a very interesting person tonight, but I can't find it again. At some point, I saw it. His name is where. Chad Woodward, and he is an astrologer, writer, body worker, and student of anthropology and psychology. And um, he's been studying astrology for 15 years and draws upon several. Paradigms such as psychological, archetypal, evolutionary, and Hellenistic astrology. And he's been featured on Mystic Mama, which I love that astrology blog, and Mm. Answers.com, Planet Waves, 
Yeah, so um, I'm familiar with Chad because we're friends on social media, so I was happy to see that he was on here tonight, and um, we've just been uh, kind of following each other for many years, and it was a nice surprise to see that he was going to be on the radio. What fun. Mm-hmm. So that's at 9 o'clock East Coast time, um, a little less than an hour and a half from now, so stay with us until then or come back and enjoy um a peek into the stars. They tell, but they do not compel. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of interesting astrology going on right now, too. I mean, coinciding with this whole, uh, you know, all of everything that's going on right now. So it's like the upheaval was written in the stars, too. Upheaval so, um, was written in the stars. All right. There you go. Mm-hmm. Ah. We had a wonderful uh, weekend of workshops here. We uh, went out on Saturday into the woods to see all of the spring plants. Of course, in a deciduous forest, you have this wonderful thing that happens before the trees leave out. And that is that the understory plants, many of which are very powerful medicinal plants, have their couple of days in the sun. And they make the most of it. They bloom, you know, they get pollinated, and that's it. If you're not there on those couple of days, you don't see those flowers. Mm-hmm. So we uh, went out and we hung out with the dwarf ginseng, and we spent some time with gold thread, which is American coptis. And mm-hmm. we went out to my little woodland garden, plants that I have brought down from the higher mountains. I'm at about 500 feet above sea level. And I brought... Um, some blue cohosh and some wild ginger down. They like to grow up higher, over 2,000 feet. Mm-hmm. But I have them tucked into a cool corner of the garden where they seem to be thriving. And um, cool. we went went to the river, and we went out and harvested ramps. We got some wild leeks for our lunch and just had a really stunning day. And then Sunday was our hands-on spring tonics and we talked about what a tonic is I go into a lot of detail about that in the new book Um, tonics are the next best herbs after nourishing herbs as you know my my heart is devoted to the nourishing herbs but the tonic herbs are really important as well the major uh, tonic herbs are called adaptogens of course but there are all kinds of other tonics as well. So we uh, did our best to uh, find them, talk about them, make things from them. We picked nettle and had nettle for lunch and we uh, picked some cleavers and we picked some chickweed. The chickweed is so abundant this year. How's your chickweed doing? It's good. I have a couple different spots I harvest from. Like I can not get it to grow really well, like in my garden here. But then there's a spot down by the river that it just loves and flourishes in every year. But right now it's already, you know, flowering. And I was going to say it's almost all gone now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. as soon as it as soon as summer starts in May first starts summer, and the chickweed says bye. See you next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in some places it will come back in the fall. But mm-hmm. yeah, really I can cool, cool, cool weather. Actually, yeah. So mm-hmm. we talked about making chickweed oil and chickweed tincture, and there was a MD here, and she was so excited to make chickweed tincture because she sees 
um, so many women who have ovarian cysts. And she agrees with me that way too many women are castrated, have their ovaries removed uh, over ovarian cysts, most of which actually remiss on their own, and especially for postmenopausal women. So mm-hmm. she was very excited to have something um, so effective as chickweed tincture to help resolve those ovarian cysts and to keep women out of surgery. Mm-hmm. Yes, very important. Yeah, and a wonderful moon lodge on Friday. Women, you know, cheerfully saying how important it is to them to have, you know, to actually sit in circle. And, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not, again, virtual. Virtual's okay, but there are certain things um, that aren't the same. And it's one of the reasons that I decided that the Wise Women Center would continue this year with the workshops and the moon lodges and the classes. And it's working out very, very well. Of course, there's plenty of space here for us to stay six feet apart. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to go to the lodge on Thursday, and we're going to be six feet apart. And I'm really yeah. excited. I, it's even more valuable during this time to, like, make those spaces available because we we need, you know, I think just being isolated is not good for people. Well, we know it's not good for people. It's not good for your immune system, to put it rather pointedly as well. And mm-hmm. certainly we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect each other. That's very important. Um, but it's also very important that we do maintain some eye-to-eye, um, actual physical um, ways of being with each other so we don't forget how mm-hmm. to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> kind of scary like all the online stuff actually. But. The online stuff is scary, you say? Yeah, just to be attached to a device all the time and um just everybody, yeah. you know, kind of headspace all the time. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Yep. All right. Do we um, have anybody with any questions tonight? Yeah, we have several people with their hand raised. If you have a question for Susan, make sure to press 1 to speak with her. And the first caller is coming from the 845 area code. Is that me? I don't know. I can't see your phone number. You're the one who knows your phone number. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi. Can can you hear me, Susan? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, hello. How are what you? The, what's up tonight? Um, well, I, I read um, your um, Tuesday um, blog, and um, <clears throat> it made me uh, think of a question about the relationship between echinacea and St. John's wort as far as... Um, your immune system and preventing infection and also how it um, would relate to the present situation with uh, um, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Have you um, wandered over to the Wise Woman School and seen that I have a free course on herbs that can be useful? Yes, I I did. I've seen that already. I think I have to review it again. Okay, because I certainly do cover echinacea there. Oh, it is? 
Yes, Echinacea is part of the, there's 22 lessons there, and Echinacea is one of them. Mm-hmm. And we have hundreds of years of experience of seeing that Echinacea has been used in situations where there are fevers. I myself have seen Echinacea bring down high fevers very, very rapidly. It's a real delight to uh, see that. And I do tend to use Echinacea tincture, and I tend to use large doses of the Echinacea tincture, which is um, a drop for every two pounds of body weight. And there's about 25 drops to a dropper full. So if you weigh 150 pounds, that's three dropper falls is your dose. It's a pretty large amount. And um, my take on why some people don't get the results they want with Echinacea is they aren't using enough, and they aren't using it frequently enough. So if someone were running a fever and they were using echinacea to help bring it down, certainly not the only herb, but a very effective one, um, I would take that dose of um, one drop of echinacea for every two pounds of body weight um, maybe every two hours. I would not be afraid to take a lot of it as the fever then remissed and as my symptoms uh, quelled, then I would spread out the time. So instead of taking it every two hours, I might take it every three hours, every four hours, and so on. Mm-hmm. Hypericum perforatum, St. Jones wort, as I call it, is an antiviral. It is not, however, um, as general an antiviral as others. In fact, I find Hypericum perforatum pretty specific to being able to clear herpes infections. I've also known it to really help people who have um, HIV infections. But is it a general purpose herb? Is it an herb that has been used for hundreds of years when people have colds or flus? No. Not at all. I see. Would, would you take it um, bef- when, you're, when you're well to prevent um, a cold or the flu? In general, what I take when I'm well to stay well is nourishing herbal infusions. Mm-hmm. Are you drinking your nourishing herbal infusions? Yes, I, I am. That's what you're doing to stay well then? It's like making your own vitamins. Well, it's being the recipient of the wonderful vitamins that the plants make for sure. Mm-hmm. And then I leave, you know, I might I might use Hypericum on a daily basis depending on what I'm doing. The work weekend where we cleared the barn and moved compost, that was pretty heavy-duty work. And I, one of my favorite uses for Hypericum is to help prevent muscle spasms and muscle aches when, when you have engaged in very vigorous labor. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that, that too. Yeah, so that, I would say that's, for me, that is perhaps one of my primary uses of hypericum. 
and I have it, you know, nearby me. So that at the end of the day, you know, I ask myself, hmm, you need some hypericum. Are you going to wake up tomorrow stiff and sore? Mm-hmm. And if so, why don't we take some now and not wake up stiff and sore? I ha- I have one other um, question to ask. Would would you take both hawthorn berry and um, motherwort if um, to treat high blood pressure? Um, well, let me be a little bit picky. Um, it's against the law to use herbs to treat any human disease. So I don't use those words. Okay. Right? Um, we're not talking about drugs here, so we're not actually engaging in a treatment. What we have are two herbs, both of which have been shown repeatedly to um, help people lower their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I make this distinction is if you have high blood pressure and it's treated with a drug, you are not being made healthier. I you're know that. I, I, I'm i not quite sure if I have it or not, but my but doctor gave me another wart, then you are making yourself healthy. It, it uh, almost killed me. What almost killed you? The There were two drugs. One was a beta blocker, and mm-hmm. the other was a... Uh, something like a calcium, calcium blocker. Something like that, yeah. And um, that definitely made me much worse than whatever my blood pressure was. So I'm saying that's a treatment. You're being treated, <laughs> yeah, right? I see what you mean. Whereas if you're using Hawthorne and or motherwort. You are not being treated. Your blood pressure is not being treated. You are being made healthier. Mm-hmm. And your body can then have the blood pressure that is ideal. Have the blood pressure that works for you. Have a moderate blood pressure. Have a blood pressure that signifies your health because you're using herbs that have a Fear of action rather than drugs that have an arrow of action. Well, that sounds much better. So if you want to take both Hawthorne and Motherwort, there's nothing against it. If -hmm. you have only one of them and take only one of them, that will work too. Okay. The great thing about herbs and herbal medicine, especially when we're working with nourishing and tonifying herbs, is it's pretty hard to do it wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Susan. That that was very helpful. And I'm looking forward to reading your new book. I'm in the process of ordering it. Oh, I think that you will enjoy it very, very much. Well, thank uh, you. And green blessings. Blessings and good night. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 603 area code. Hey, Susan, thank you so much for taking my call. I'm so happy to talk to you this evening. And I'm happy to talk to you. What's going on? 
Oh my goodness. Um, I have I have a few questions. I'm trying to get some things straight in my mind. First of all, that um, regarding the previous caller, you mentioned the St. John's wort um, for achy um, that you've overworked. Now, would you um, would you take um, both the tincture and the oil of the um, of the St. John's wort um, for achy achy muscles. I have or never what? taken. I've never taken the oil internally. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to rub it on your muscles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know the um, my mentor Jean Houston said that one of the the real criteria for good health is to be in rhythm with the natural cycles of the planet. And one of the largest of those rhythms is the rhythm of summer solstice and winter solstice. In fact, the oldest structures that human have, humans have built that we know of weren't to shelter themselves. They just went into caves to shelter themselves. But they built structures to mark when that point of the longest day and when that point of the shortest day was. So we're just past May Day, the beginning of summer, and then midsummer is June 21st, summer solstice. So in order to be synchronized with these natural events, our way back ancestors um, set aside some, some time to ritual and to be with people and to a party and the um, one of the things that you see when you're part of nature is that things die and then things come come back again. There's a cycle, a spiral of life. And as the Catholic Church gained prominence and power, um, it was very upset by people's belief that things came back again. It wanted people to believe that they lived one life. It was a life of sorrow. And if they behaved themselves, maybe they would get out of purgatory and into heaven. And if not, then you would burn in hell. And so toward that end, what they did was that they took away summer solstice and people's celebration of summer solstice and instead brought in St. John's Day, which is three days earlier. And this is why I do not call Hypericum Perforatum St. John's Wort. It's the herb of summer solstice. For thousands of years, this is an herb that's been used to commemorate summer solstice and to have it be given the name of a man who has nothing to do with summer solstice and is not very nice. Um, It's just not something I would tolerate. So that's why I call it St. Joan's Wort. You know, it's an herb that helps prevent sunburn and treats burns of all kinds. And I figure Joan is probably pretty wise about burns. Yes. Okay, so I need to, I need to, uh, I guess I must have used uh, the name incorrectly. St. Saint jo- Saint John's Wort. incorrect. Like- Everybody else calls it St. John's Wort, and that's why, because of that switch the Catholic Church made. I just don't. I make a point of not calling it St. John's Wort, St. John's Wort, because I don't Understood. like it. Understood. So um, I, 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 bel- I, I remember hearing you talk talking about making the hypericum oil to rub on achiness. I, I think I heard you say once how you keep it by your t- 
by on the table beside your chair if you're aching aching now that's the tincture i use the oil pretty rarely oh it's the tincture you rub on do you also take rub it on i've never seen anything about rubbing anything on oh i'm sorry um could i start again so you're taking the saint the um hypericum tincture orally if you're for sore muscles correct okay all right not to prevent sore muscles To prevent, I'm sorry, you, I, I don't know what's wrong with, um, I, you keep on, okay. um, you, you know, on me. what you're doing is very standard. People do it all the time. People come to me and say, what do you have for a headache? And I say, how about two kids under the age of three and a drum? And they look at me like I've lost my marble. But I say, you just asked me what's good for a headache. Perhaps you want something that's good against a headache. It's a common, yes, it, it's a common figure of speech. But I'm having a whole lot. I'm having a whole lot of trouble. I actually hear what people say and don't kind of go along with what I'm supposed to hear. <laughs> I actually hear the words. I see. Okay, I'm not doing too well tonight, am I? Could I start again? I have terrible achiness from from doing too much, and I was looking to uh, to ask you. What, well, what kind of too much do you do? Excuse me. What did you say? What kind of too much are you doing? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, I don't even know how, how to start. Run a horse um, farm, I, and I'm on my feet 20 hours a day chasing after horses. No, no, no. I'm very limited now. and I, I, I have a severe spinal problem and um, a severe scoliosis. It's worse, and I've had to um, resort to trying uh, an injection in my spine, which did not take away the pain. It's a rotating spine. I'm 69, and I've had, um, I dealt with it all my life, but it's worsened terribly since I had a couple of um, minor um, um, traumas uh, several months ago, and it's worsened terribly. And um, I'm so I'm trying to go out and harvest some things, um, and that, that's and those were my my questions. Um, just um, bending over, trying not to bend over, taking a stool with me just to handle, just to pick dandelion blossoms. I mean, my thighs are just um, my thighs are just throbbing. Um, of course, my back is, but the thighs are minor, but they're throbbing. I mean, I have enough to deal with with my with my lower spine. Um, I have to horizontal for three hours um, of every day after I only um, I'm up for one hour doing doing something so it's a handicap I'm trying to deal with it I'm trying to figure um, I don't know what to do with just the aching the terrible achiness I in my thighs from trying to harvest some of these herbs Um, and uh, this is why I'm asking you for more specifics so You know, the kind of muscle ache that we're talking about in terms of hypericum, I just walked 10 miles. I'm going to take some hypericum so that I can walk tomorrow. I just shoveled out all the stuff from the barn. I'm going to take some hypericum so that I'm not in muscle spasm tomorrow. 
really active physical labor. I just ran a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm taking Hypericum. What you're talking about, and you characterized it as that you have pain because you're doing too much, but I don't think the pain is from doing too much. The pain seems to be chronic pain. Well, this is totally new in my thighs because um, because I'm bending, you know, I'm bending down using my muscles, and I'm glad to be doing that. But they're throbbing and spasming, and it's like it's hard for me to walk up and down the stairs. I have enough trouble walking up and down the stairs with my spine, and I, you know, I was just looking to see if I could. Uh, so what I would uh, say is experiment. Experiment with both the oil and the tincture. See if rubbing the oil on your thighs before or after you're doing this is effective for you. See if taking the tincture before or after is helpful for you. Okay. Okay. As a tonic herb, you can't really go amok. Okay, that's great. Well, well, thank you for asking that. Something else that I found outside, because you just brought it up, Tonight was chickweed, and I'm I'm thrilled to have um, found it. And I I'm thinking that my goodness, it it must have a just for me. And I would like to ask you. Um, I mean, I've I've been in this property for ten years, and I've never had chickweed appear. Um, so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, maybe this is this can help me in some way, <laughs> um, in some way. And I was looking to see if you can. Um, um, tell me what uh, can I make a a, tic, a tincture out of chickweed? Um, of, chickweed, chickweed oh. contains substances called saponins. They're soap-like substances, and these soap-like substances help things to flow in the body, and especially help to break down cysts and deposits. And perhaps to influence um, how much fat tissue we have in our body. So chickweed tincture, which I mentioned before, that the MD um, was excited to find could help women dissolve ovarian cysts. And you take the tincture between two and four times a day on a daily basis until the cyst is dissolved. I heard you say that, and I was wondering if it was useful for anything else. At 69 years old, I've never had ovarian cysts. I was just, you know, wondering if it appeared from, for me, I have such deep pain in my spine, and I was trying to Do think, you have hmm, my green book? Um, um, your, green, your green one the is... healing-wise? Uh, I, there's, an I entire, do have that. there's an entire chapter on chickweed. Okay, I will look at that. I will look at that. I I appreciate that mm-hmm. so much. Well, I, I also just... mentioned over the weekend that chickweed oil, infused oil of chickweed, is a wonderful lubricant because it's very slippery and slidey. And that in years when there's a lot of chickweed, that we make chickweed pesto. Oh, well, that's a good idea. Is that mentioned in your book, Chickweed Pesto? I believe so. Okay, and and you would use that as a lubri- the the oil as a as a lubricant for what for for what Sexual kind of lubricant? Lubricant. Where do you need to be lubricated? 
Okay, okay, all right. Well, thank you for that. I have a question that may appear, oh gosh, I need so much help. I'm having trouble with um, um, deciding how, okay, first of all, to make things with apple cider vinegar um, and to make things with vodka. I know the tincture you make with the with the 100 proof vodka. Now, um, and some things I remember you have made, used violet blossoms to put into honey. I have done that. It was wonderful. I did that last year, not this year yet. I don't have any honey right now. Um, but I was I using this whole um, quart uh, jar of um, violet blossoms that I put up last year in apple cider vinegar. And um, I got down to the bottom. There's only like um, two inches left in the bottom of this quart jar. And um, I didn't use it for about a month. Um, and I noticed mold is growing on top. So I was wondering, could that be, should I have put it into a smaller jar? My question is, when you're doing apple cider vinegar or... Um, did you pasteurize the vinegar? Oh, gosh, that was another question I had for you because I did not, and I did not do that. But I never had trouble with the – I will do that from now on. But I never had trouble with mold until it got down to the bottom two inches of this whole quart that I used on salads all this winter with oil. So my question is, did that – Form because there's so much air in this jar, should I have moved it to a smaller jar um, uh, as, a, as I used it up? You could, but mostly it formed because the vinegar was unpasteurized. I see. Okay. And I couldn't remember if I ever heard you speak of um, – I remember you m- mentioning um, when someone called in about mold on the top, but I couldn't remember what it was in regarding to, because I remember you saying something that about oil. Your... And if there's some oh, mold on, on top of the oil, we I just take it off. Oh, on oil, it's okay to just take it off. But this would, um, so because this vinegar was, was not pasteurized, which all I would need to do is bring it to a boil. How would you, how would you do that? Pasteurize it and bring it to a boil and let it cool. Okay, and then use it, and and then I would wait till it cool, like till it cools off. So you saying this? I should just pitch this. This is not healthy for me. I just can't can't scrape off the mold and use the rest of it. You wouldn't. No, you can't. The mold is all through the vinegar. Okay, I will just pitch it then. Um, very curious to me why the mold didn't form sooner. Like I said, I used the whole quart of it throughout the winter, but I will do that. Thank you. Regarding violet... It it may uh, be that the temperature in your house changed. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Um, Regarding the violets, um, do you... Can one ever make a violet um, tincture? Or can I uh, own... um, Yes, of course you can make a violet tincture. Okay, I'm wondering, because those have appeared in copious amounts this year, too, for me, 
and I'm wondering how I could use them beside the, my violet um, blossoms. There's an entire chapter on violets in the green book. I will look that up too then as soon as I can see if I can unpack that. It's still packed up. Um, hope I can find it because those are in bloom right now. Okay. Um, I did have another question on the, I watched your dandelion tincture, you making the dandelion tincture on YouTube. And um, I noticed that you didn't use the stems of the whole, however, you did say to use all, you can use all parts of the dandelion. Um, and um, I didn't know if you can use the stems with that milky sap inside um, or not. I I couldn't see that you used used it. Um, I checked out. I was making. Type. I was using what part of the dandelion? You um, you were using the the um and the flower, um, but you did mm-hmm. mention you could use all parts. So I wondered if that if we were using that, leaf and flower, there was stem in there too. Then I only saw one stem in all in the whole quart jar that you made. So it's okay to use the stems with the milky sap okay. as well? I'm sure that I cut it up so that you wouldn't have noticed the stalks. Oh, okay. All right. So um, that made me think, so the milky sap is not harmful that's in the stem? Then evidently not. Sap is in every part of it, and it is the most medicinal part of the plant. Oh, my goodness. That's good to know. So when I see that milky sap in wild lettuce as well, is that um, um, the most medicinal part of the plant? Or I look at that as food, though, not medicine, the wild lettuce. I don't know. Maybe it is medicine. That milky sap is similar to opium in the wild lettuce. Okay. So is that, that's not harmful then, or is it in the wild lettuce? That's just far too general a question. And I'm going to say Uh, green things and go on to the next person because I've answered a lot of your questions tonight. Yeah? Thank you. Green blessings. Thank you so much. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 917 area code. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, well, I'm sitting here in my backyard and got inspired about chickweed, and I had my <laughs> daughter go go and go and um, get some of that white little white flower growing off in the corner. But then I looked it up on this wonderful app I have that identifies the, the plants, and it says that it's garlic mustard. Um, so obviously it's not chickweed, <laughs> uh, but I have a lot of it. Um, chickweed has ten petals, and garlic mustard has four. Okay. That okay, right. I'm still Garth learning. It's a tall plant and chickweed is a creeping plant. I see. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, you cannot identify a plant by saying fire. it has white flower. That is the way to kill yourself. Okay. <laughs> Definitely don't want to do that. What um, made you think it was chickweed? Uh, oh, go ahead. What made you think this plant was chickweed? Oh, just I, I don't know a lot about foraging um, 
the chickweed. And I was just sitting here and you were talking about it. And I just thought, well, let me, let me see what this is growing in my garden, growing in my backyard. Got it. Understood. It was just a kind most of curiosity. Thing, the most important thing about foraging is to look very, very carefully at the plant. Yes, yes, yes. Ten leaves. Ten, ten, ten blossoms. Petals on chickweed. Petals on chickweed. There are actually five, but they're cut so deeply it looks like ten. Okay. I will, I will look again. Um, I'm calling because uh, actually I, I listened to your wonderful uh, webinar last night. Um, actually, I listened to it this morning. Um, and um, with the herbalist. Um, Linda Conroy. Spoke. Forgive me. I'm Linda Conroy. Yes, yes, yes. And I it was I'm listening to that with just such great interest. I just I feel um just ejected from the spaceship of capitalism personally. I just feel like so much of my world has is coming crashing down. Um, just in terms of different kinds of aspirations I had as you know, I'm fifty four years old and I'm husbandless and you know, living under a kind of mortgage with just illusion of... Let me ask you this. What is capitalism? Um, to me, it's just a, it's a belief system. It's a system of, of, of living within, with, a certain, with certain kinds of beliefs that are somehow going to... Yeah, capitalism, you know, yeah. capitalism has nothing to do with belief. It's not religion. Capitalism, oh. capitalism is... A monetary system in which any person can share in the risk and the rewards of a business. So if I think, wow, providing electricity for people is a cool business, I would like to buy some shares in an electricity company. And if if I'm right that electricity is a great business, then I'll make some money because they'll make some money. So I provide my capital by buying a share, and then I reap the reward, or I, if, if I'm wrong and providing electricity isn't such a great thing, then I don't get a reward. Capitalism means that we can all participate. Probably one of the very best economic ways that there is in the world and it is why uh, virtually everyone seeks to have um, a capitalistic uh, economy because it is so egalitarian and it is so helpful for everyone. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated to hear you say that. Communism, on the other hand, means that nobody gets ahead ever. I've been in communist countries. I've been in actually quite a few communist countries right after the Berlin Wall came down. And the amount of fear that people in those countries had and the lack of delight in their lives, the ugly buildings, the ugly fields... Because nobody owns anything, nobody invests. 
Oh, and I am not. I absolutely, um, I agree with you. I've also traveled to communist countries. It's definitely not a model. It's not. Absolutely not. But at the same time, capitalism does wreak quite a lot of suffering in terms of um, the kind of culture of failure that it perpetuates. Failure in the sense of trying something out and it not working and that kind of feeling. Capitalism is about success. Death? Capitalism is about success. It's not about failure. That this is your this is the this is resilience, right? <laughs> because I'm trying to figure out how to continue, you know, that that idea of just being resilient that you spoke about. And um, my and my and my next teleseminar is with Genevieve Vaughn, who's going to talk to us about the gift culture. Right. Which is yet a different and another way of doing it. And she, she I'm not going to in any way steal any of her thunder because I don't know the ins and outs of it nearly as well as Genevieve does. But it is certainly a very fascinating and interesting way. CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, is one of the finest flowerings of capitalism. You buy a share in a farm. Mm -hmm. Rather than go to the market and buy what's cheapest or what you like, you actually buy a share of a farm, and you support that farm and that farmer. That's capitalism. But capitalism is also a culture of debt. A culture of debt? Why is it a culture of debt? Debt be, uh, because because in order to build businesses, um, often one has to incur incur debt, and when those debts accumulate, that causes energetic suffering. Um, in a, in in I, in, in I, larger we, culture, in in there's so many economic that's. That's not true, simply not true at all. The ability to lend and to borrow money is, again, a way of providing people with equal access. Are you saying that you think that no one should be allowed to buy a house unless they can pay for the house in full up front? Oh, no. No, not at all. So you think a mortgage is okay? Yes, I have one. And well, that's so a I'm, debt. That's a debt right there. Are you participating right. in a culture of debt? No, you're participating in a culture of abundance because you have a mor- because you have a mortgage. <laughs> oh my goodness! And that mortgage, wow. you are paying some interest on that mortgage, and that interest goes to the lending institution, which allows them to lend more money to more people to get more houses. But you must admit that right now the the system is flailing and is kind of tossing people out. And it really is a feeling of being tossed from the spaceship that was, you know, kind of going along. I do not see that capitalism is doing this. I see that politics and fear is doing this, but it's not capitalism. Capitalism, as a matter of fact, is one of the things that's keeping us afloat right now. Um, for it's instance, you could look at a very large corporation that everybody knows about called Amazon. 
And yeah. as this as this crisis with COVID nineteen evolved, Amazon, because it's a capitalist economy, was able to say, "We're going to shift what we're doing, and we are going to focus solely on providing food and medical supplies." And we apologize to everybody, but we're not going to be selling clothes or books or any of that stuff for a while until we can get the food and medical supplies stabilized. So because it's a capitalist economy, they were able to make that decision and to move forward with that and then to hire 15,000 more people. Who then, with all due respect, did go on, you know, did did, uh, protest rather vehemently against their working conditions. I am not saying anything about their working conditions. We're not talking about working conditions. We're talking about capitalism. Working conditions are different than capitalism. Well, there I might have to have to disagree with you. But what I would love to know oh, some of the most which I would love to have with some you know, of the have... most employee friendly companies are capitalist companies. Excuse me. You can't just pick out the worst ones and act like that that is the whole thing. Would you want somebody to do that about your personality? Pick out the nasty parts of you and forget the good parts of you? That's absolutely fair. It's true that there that there is there is there is potential in this in this it's system. It's not potential, it's in I think the that y'all right. could have a there little are, bit more of your understanding of are the system. Huge corporations that treat their workers extremely well. Yes, but I mean, you would have to have to agree that the healthcare system is 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 failing people. Healthcare regards- system is not a capitalist economy. Excuse me, healthcare system oh, is run by I, the insurance. I just it's at all. It's a pharmaceutical. It's based on it's it's based on the pharmaceutical companies, and their and their privatized interest in perpetuating the drug machine. But and that's that, capitalist. That is right? not because of capitalism. That could happen just as easily if it was communist. Um, Let's not mix our fruits together here. Certainly okay. there are bad behaviors. We do not want to support those bad behaviors. But to say that those bad behaviors are caused by capitalism is simply wrong. Capitalism is the system which allows us to move away from those bad behaviors. Uh, that's amazing. So, so you're asking me to sort of hunker down and find find the. I have always, when I had a little money to invest, I've always invested it in a socially responsible way. For instance, there's a wonderful group of funds called PACS, P-A-X. It means peace. Yes. And this is a group of mutual funds: the Women's Fund, the International Fund, the Equity Fund, and so on, all of which are devoted to peace. So when you invest. You are buying a share of peace. Right. Right? So, you know, and this is a phenomenon that other other people of my age and my leanings have created over the past 25 years. So we have said, yes, we want to invest, but we do not wish to invest in munitions or drugs or what 
whatever the individual does not want to invest in. We want to invest in peace. We want to invest in humanity. And because of that, there are many socially responsible funds now available which then support and nourish socially responsible businesses. Did you know that there are more than one million environmental organizations on this planet right now? Mm -hmm. Some of them are very, very large with millions and millions of members, but there are over one million ecological organizations. We're doing really well. Let's take this opportunity to focus on how we're doing well and to do more of that. Right. And and just 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 doing that, just focusing on that in, on the small term every day. As Grandmother Twilight used to say to us, if you point a finger, one is sticking out, but if you look, three are pointing at you. So while it is worthwhile to say what we don't like and what we don't want to replicate, it is more worthwhile to focus on what we want to build, what we want to have, to see who is doing that, see how we can support them, and how we can spread that rather than to rail against the injustices, which truthfully are far less now than they were even 100 years ago. Right. Well, it's less railing and more feeling, you know, since I've... Feeling and more, this is what um, I want. Okay. Go go into, um, into, into, into... Into ant mode building. Find out what it is you want to support and support it. Okay. Thank you very much. It's more effective than trying to tear down the things that you think are wrong. At least in my experience. There are certainly things that are wrong. There are things that I don't like. And I look for ways to promote that which I like. That's why I talk about the PACS funds. I'm not an investment advisor. But what I like about the PACS funds is when the market goes up, they go up a little. And when the market goes down, they go down a little. Very stable, right? You're not speculating. You're going to get a huge return, but you're also going to be protected from panic when, when things change. So buy a share in a CSA, buy a share in PAX fund, um, buy a share in your friend's business, be a capitalist. Be the kind of capitalist you want to see. Um, thank you. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for your question and the great discussion. Green blessings. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 208 area code. Hi. Good evening. Yes, hi. Good evening. I have a question about my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. About a month ago, I noticed that she had a little lump on her top eyelid about the size of a pea. And uh, my pediatrician told me that that is a chalazian, which is a blocked gland. 
and he advised um, I do some compresses. So I did the compresses about once a day for um, about a few weeks. I would uh, soak a washcloth in a black tea, and then once it's uh, tolerable enough, I would put it on her eyelid for about a minute or two, and I would repeat that a few times. And also, maybe not every day, but every other day, during the day, I would boil, boil an egg and put it in a, wrap it in a washcloth, and I would also put it to her eyelid for maybe about a minute or two. So it's been about a month, and the lump is still there. It might have gotten a teeny tiny bit bigger, but um, usually at the end of the day, um, at the beginning of the day, it looks fine. But at the end of the day, it might be a little bit red, but it doesn't seem to bother her. And I do the compress um, in the evening, and in the morning, it looks okay, too. So I called up the doctor to follow up. Uh, he told me to stop the compresses because they're not really helping uh, this the um, chelation. And he said, just wait it out. Um, and my question is, if I can use any herbal allies to help uh, drain the the chelation, or should I wait it out, or how does it even work? In general, when I'm working with some kind of bump, lump, I ask myself the kinds of questions, the kinds of things you've been saying. Is it bothersome to the person? Does it appear to be growing? Does it have a sharply defined margin? Is it discolored? And the fewer answers that we get as to yes there, the less I'm likely to do. Okay. Life, life is full of bumps. And if the bump is not irritated, angry, um, discharging, um, or in any way causing a problem, then I don't cause it a problem, especially not in the eye area, which is kind of difficult to compress. Yes. There's a lot of sensitive blood vessels and nerves there. And the herb of the night is chickweed. Chickweed has a very long and rich association with dissolving growths, especially on the eyes. If you have any fresh chickweed, fresh chickweed can be harvested, crushed up in some way, and put it between a couple of towels and roll it with a rolling pin or just crush it between your hands and apply that moist chickweed mass to the eye area. The saponins, the soap-like substances in the chickweed, encourage flow and encourage movement and help to dissolve unwanted things. So that's what I would be looking at 
in terms of a green ally for the eyes. Okay, and those chiclet compresses, would you do them once a day, four times a day, or it doesn't really matter? It doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. How much much chiclet do you have? How much time do you have? How tolerant is your daughter of it? Does she like doing it? If she likes doing it, she could go out and get the chickweed and compress her eye all day long. It's not a problem. If she doesn't like it and you don't have much time and you don't have much chickweed, then you'll do it once a day and everything in between. Okay. Herbs are not drugs. We don't have to worry about using them specifically and exactly. If you're getting good results and you see that on days when you do it more often, the results seem to come faster, that might encourage you to do it more, but... It doesn't have to. And I'm not saying that that would necessarily happen. Mm-hmm. Again, for me, part of the grace and the the deliciousness of herbal medicine is that it allows us to be individual. It allows us to work with your daughter and her eye and this growth and chickweed rather than having some plan we have to follow. Well, perfect. That answers my question. Thank you. Thank you so much for your knowledge. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good Green day. blessings. Good night. Hey, Rebecca, I'm not seeing that email. That is strange. I sent it to you. you Let's sent see. It. Okay. Um, okay. It does say that it went through, but I can resend. Is it in? Did it go into your... Um, like junk mail or into one of your other folders, maybe? Wise Women Radio 423. That's not tonight. Junk. Blog Talk Radio Info May 5th. There you go. It That's is. the one. Ed Woodward. Mm-hmm. Good call. All right. I got it. Let's go on to the next All question. Right. Okay, let's see where we were at. We were at the 208, so the next the caller is coming from the 919 area code. This is me, Wendy. Hi, good evening. Hi. Um, I have a couple of questions. So one question is that my whorehound is doing really beautifully this year, so I made... Um, and it's flowering right now. So I made a horehound honey, and I made a tincture. And I was just curious if you if you have experience using um, horehound, and if you would use the tincture for, um, say, if you had a cough or something like that. Horehound is a member of the mint family. But it is not very aromatic. In fact, it is very, very bitter. When I was first interested in herbs in the 60s, whorehound was kind of a common remedy. You could go to an ordinary drugstore and get whorehound cough drops. And they were, you know, whorehound sweetened. uh, But even, even sweetening it still didn't make it not bitter. And because of that, it's fallen out of favor. Because people don't like bitter. 
<laughs> Traditionally, whorehound honey or sweetened whorehound is what is used to help people who have coughs. Honey itself, uh, of course, is the first remedy I think of anytime there's a cough. Mm-hmm. And to take my aromatic herbs and put them up in honey is a lovely way to preserve them and have them instantly available to me so that if I have a cough and I want to use whorehound, then I can simply take a spoonful of my whorehound honey, put it in a cup, pour boiling water over it, and it is ready instantly because the honey has absorbed all the good of the whorehound, and now it's whoop right in there. And, of course, I've got some of the plant material in there as well. Usually when we're using a tincture, it's because there's some constituent in the tincture that we want to have a, shall we say, a general effect. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about taking Hypericum perforatum and its effect on muscles and muscle soreness. So there's certain constituents in the Hypericum that have an effect on muscles all over the body. And that's why we would use it as a tincture. If Mm -hmm. we wanted to be specific with the hypericum, like if there was a specific sore muscle, then we would use the oil. Massage therapists say, you know, they're massaging somebody and they get to that, like, golf ball-sized lump of hard muscle. They rub some hypericum oil into it, go deal with another part of the body and come back and the, the, the lump has relaxed. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that if what I want is to soothe the sore throat and to quell a cough, that I want the whorehound right there, not as a tincture. Mm-hmm. I don't have some constituent in it. Okay. But that doesn't, doesn't mean you couldn't use it as a tincture. Okay. It's rare the mints are tinctured. It's rare that mints are tinctured. Oh, okay. Yeah, we don't usually use like rosemary tincture, right? Right, right, yes. We use rosemary honey or rosemary vinegar. And we make a rosemary wash or a poultice rosemary, right? You know, certainly motherwort is tinctured. Right, that's what I was thinking It's a mint, and it's a bitter Mm -hmm. mint. Mm -hmm. And it's specific to the flowering top of it. The other parts of it are used in, in... different ways and usually not tinctured. So, again, um, we don't have to do it right. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of different ways to do it. And one of the fun parts about it is you have a relationship with hyssop. What will hyssop do for you? It will work in a somewhat different way for you then the books are talking about because of your relationship. In the same way that when we're friends with someone, we will do something for that person that we wouldn't do for other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm all yeah, for experimenting, you know, doing it wrong, seeing what happens, trying it out. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Great. Yeah. I'm going to try it this year. Um, 
so well. And this year, it just look it's like flowering, so happy. It's and so it's really, pretty. What color? What yeah. color? What color do you have? Oh no, it's horehound. Horehound. Oh, horehound. I'm sorry. What color horehound do you have? It's like a, kind of a. Uh, uh, what's the right word? Like a gray green, and the flowers are white. And the flowers are white. Okay. There's yeah, also little horehound tiny with white. purple flowers. Oh, okay, yeah, they're little tiny white flowers. Little tiny white flowers, beautiful, beautiful. And it's very bitter, so, I mean, I've been, like, tasting it. Very bitter, it. yes, very yeah, bitter. Yeah, it's, it's so bitter. It it's makes great. I like, like bitter. Green, it's so bitter. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Um, thank you for that. My, I hope this is, like, a quick question, but um, my hypericum is flowering right now. And I'm surprised by how early it's flowering. Um, and it just started a couple of days ago. And I, I'm growing a fair amount. It doesn't grow very much in the wild here. Um, so I planted it last year. And so this is the first year it's flowering. And I was wondering, like, you know, it seems like it's going to progressively keep opening. And in order to get uh, as much of the flowers as I can in a tincture, do you, would you... Um, what I was thinking I would do is start tincturing what I flowering tops start to open up. Um, is that is is that a good idea? Like just at, continuing to add plant material to the tincture over the time that it flowers? Absolutely. Okay, great. That's my plan. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. I mean, I, uh, I do that with my passion flower. Okay, cool. Since Great, when I had the yeah. passion flower vine, I usually usually only get you know one flower a day. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I just do like a rolling tincture. Okay, wonderful. All Thanks right. Thanks so much. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. Okay, we still have six callers with questions in about fifteen minutes. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Okay, the next caller is coming from the two five two area code. Hi, Susan. Um, calling with a question about a plant, and I didn't know if you were familiar with it or had used it before, and I may not pronounce it correctly. I, in our region, we say hutunia. Am I saying that correctly? Do you recognize it? Uh, I think you're saying it correctly. It's not a plant I'm familiar with. It's one, I actually, I have a book, and it's the Home Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine, and it was the first herbal book that I got, and it's Stephen Bruner's, and I, I listened to you for a while and hadn't heard you mention this one, and it's in there, and he's touting it as an antiviral, um, and specific to coronavirus and, and SARS and some other things, and I, I just, I patented it as a garden plant, and it's not the cultivar, it's the old-fashioned one. There was some question about, um, you know, some of the cultivars could become more volatile and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I'm just wondering if you had had any use. One, some of the things that I'm reading is, is that it's being um, used as, as an infusion, and that seems to be in most of the studies that I've read how it's being administered. Um, but it's apparently a herb that's used quite prolifically in China. It's an older um, herbal remedy that's part of Asia. Um, what's, so what's I was... Botanical? Do you know the botanical name? That's it. That's it. Hutonia, H-O-U-T-T-U-Y-N-I-A. And Cordata is the, is the next the species. name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, 
and and it's definitely one of the ones that you know in this book he he it's just kind of like his green book he's got multiple plants that he talks quite a bit about and um this is one of the ones that i you know i kind of put a bookmark in there years ago when i started reading it because i knew it grew here and i knew it was very invasive and i so it's, it's really troublesome um and i thought oh maybe someday i'll get to reading about it and and i did and it looks like it's might you know when we're thinking about how we help people through some of these things because apparently everybody's going to have some layer of you know sickness if they get this um and i just thought maybe it was worth trying to you know dry it and then deco- and then um do an infusion or or from a fresh foliage it's it's a very stinky um you know it's it's used in gardens cuz it's deer resistant nothing eats it um it has a white flower I wanna, and it seemed I to me that I go back just a moment sure. I, i'm not sure that i understood what you said um, so let me say something, and then let's see how it relates to what you said. In the first week of April, 357 women came to a major New York hospital in labor wanting to give birth. They were all tested for COVID-19. Of those who tested positive, 90% had no symptoms of any kind. Now, it seems to me that you said that if you get COVID-19, you are going to have symptoms. Well, I guess what I'm seeing, and I work with some young people, and, and, and what, I, what I'm seeing is that there, there's an upper respiratory that's very severe that many of them get that don't end up putting them on a ventilator. Um, that, that there, there are, I mean, I have a, a senior person in my life who did end up on a ventilator and came off a ventilator and then had some really dramatic, um, what they thought initially was bruising because this was early in it, and now they're seeing that there's some problems, their vascular problems. Um, so I guess I was just looking for something that if, if somebody was struggling with this, that there would be either, uh, you know, something that they could drink or a tincture that they could try that might mitigate symptoms or com and gotten my free course. I did. I did. And I have made bone broths and I've been fermenting lots and, and I've lots done honey. And lots and, of stuff there, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So from thinking and nourishing herbal infusions, especially focusing on the ones that are good for the lungs. Remember, nourishing herbal infusions are made only from dried plants, and they are never made from plants that have strong smells. Well, and that's why this this is and it infusion was infusion in the dictionary is defined as tea. So if you're reading a report that they gave the infusion, they're probably giving the tea. Well, and and, and let me just say that some of what I'm reading is my first exposure to a lot of the science that goes into plant medicine. And, um, you know, I, I found a site that is a government site where there are, you know, a lot of different public, a lot of things out of periodicals and a lot of different writings of people's studies are published there. And I'm, I'm, I, I, the the approach to plants is really bizarre. Um, So I'm trying to leaf through a lot of science stuff, but I've got a lot of, I mean, I've read, read medical things for a long time. And so it's not impossible for me to glean what is being suggested, but I mean, some of it really is very specific about making water infusions and and how long they infused and how much material. And they're not saying whether it was dried or not. And I'm assuming, based on extracting constituents, that you want a dried product. 
I would. I, I think you're probably safe to assume that it was dried. This is a okay. fascinating discussion on. Who, you got to go. You have five other people on. Eugenia. <laughs> Say it again. Hutonia is how we say it here, Hutonia, but H O U T T U Y N I A. And it's it's sort of an invasive creeping garden flower in the southeast. And and, and it's actually further south. It, I think I, I it comes out of the tropics. Well, I hope that you call us back in, you know, the next four to six weeks and tell us what you've been doing with this plant. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Thanks. Wonderful. Great blessings. Thank you. Good night. To you too. Bye. The next caller is coming from the 413 area code. Good evening, Susan. Good evening. What's up with you tonight? Well, I have a couple of things, so I'll be quick. Um, One is I have probably what started as a hangnail, and I'm getting kind of an infected, that area of my thumb is getting infected. It's a little warm. It's a little bit red. It's slightly tender. um, And I'm just wondering what you would suggest for that to prevent it from getting worse. What have you been doing at this point? Well, I've only just, I, this morning I started putting some yarrow uh, tincture just directly on the opening. Um, the problem is I don't know what's, what's in it, like what's causing the problem. It could have come out of my mouth. It could have come from gardening. It could come from handling some uh, moldy things. So I don't really know like what's creating the, the inflammation. So I thought yarrow would be good because I think of it as antifungal and antibacterial. But it's yes. actually gotten worse since then, and so um, I'm. And I soaked it in Epsom salts. It was another thing I did. Mm-hmm. And that does, you know that, what the nurse's favorite soak is is a little um, ivory dish liquid. Oh, I do not the have that. The particular surfactant <laughs> in ivory that isn't in other dish liquids that really helps draw things out. And that's that was my immediate hit on this was that there's some foreign object in there. Huh. Okay. So ivory dish soap. And just and you know, sort just, of just a few bubbles in some warm water and soak it. And you know, don't be afraid to do it repeatedly. I always remember a a friend whose son, I was seven or eight years old, um carrying around the house and she did a lot of sewing and he slammed his foot down on a needle and it slammed up into his heel and broke off in his heel. And they went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, you know, it's kind of, like, really hard to, like, cut into his heel to get this. So why don't you try, like, soaking it and see what happens? And they soaked it and soaked it, and they were just about to go for surgery. It had been, like, six weeks. And the morning they were going to go to have his heel cut open in the soaking pan, they heard plink, and it had finally come out. Oh, wow. So in addition, that sounds incredible. I'll get I'll get a hold of some ivory. Um, in addition to that, is there any if to 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 ward off uh, you know an increase in inflammation? Is there any? Um... Well, chickweed is the herb of the night. So if you have some fresh chickweed there, a nice fresh chickweed poultice. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Really I will do good. that. Yeah. Thank you. And then uh, my next question is um, my son has Down syndrome, and with that comes a lot of um, skin issues. Um, but he seems to have some kind of, I don't he, he gets very rashy, but he also has, like, under his arms and behind his knees, he has these um, inflamed and kind of increasingly, in, in under one of his arms, kind of crusty 
spots. And I've been um, rinsing them down with uh, diluted um, apple cider vinegar, uh, mostly diluted. I mean, it's less, more, more water than vinegar. And it might be helping, uh, it might be getting better, um, but I just thought I would check in and see if you had a recommendation to support that either internally or on the surface. I like calendula a lot okay. for what one of my teachers called the creeping crud on your skin. And in what form? A, a salve or a tincture or, I mean, I mean, a salve or a soak or? Any way that you can work with calendula, any way that calls out to you. Um, okay. it, it really depends, you know. Some skin irritations you want to put a salve on and some you, you want to soak or put a poultice on, depending on mm-hmm. what what they're looking like and what they're looking for. Most salves are thickened with beeswax. Beeswax can cause temporary blockage on the skin and encourage the growth mm-hmm. of fungi, fungal infections. Mm-hmm. So if you're making a poultice from calendula, is that dried or fresh or either? Depends on what herb you have and what access you have, if you, you know. Well, right now um, I only have access to dried, but... So you don't have any access to fresh chickweed? Oh, chickweed, yes, but not for... I, mean, I was thinking about calendula. Chickweed's the herb of the night. Well, I'm not saying I won't do it. I just thought you were also... No, no, I'm just saying what, what's happening with calendula. Um, whatever you have access to, I know that people do use dried calendula flowers. And that even people who grow it sometimes at least half dry them because they can be a little difficult to get into oil if they're fully fresh. Okay. All right. So Usually if the calendula is dried and you're making an oil and you use oil from it um, to promote extraction, a, a small amount of heat is used because it's harder when the material is dried to get it to move into the oil. Okay. All right. All right. I okay. have a third question, but I'll save it for another time because there's other people on the line. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. That's so considerate of you. Green blessings. Good night. To you as well. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 913, 916 area code. Hi, Susan. Uh, it's so great to be speaking with you. Um, I have, so my problem is I have a, a tooth that has cracked a little bit and it already has a massive filling in it. So my dentist is telling me to get a crown on it, uh, but he's also telling me that the structure isn't very good. It'll probably keep eroding. So it seems to me like a crown isn't actually a very good um, idea. I'd rather just have it extracted. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Is um, one more associated with health than the other? The teeth are designed to fit one against the other. And if you take one out, you weaken the entire structure. So it's not just take the tooth out, it's take the tooth out, and what are you going to replace it with? Oh, are, you going to have right. impl- are you going to have an implant? Are you going to have... Uh, a bridge? Um, well, I guess I was thinking just to have it extracted like the one on the other side was. I, I had to have a tooth pulled because it, it got infected. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I hadn't thought that far ahead. <laughs> so you just left the space where the other one was? 
Yes. And have the other teeth shifted because of it? No. No, they seem to be fine. Then you're probably fine on the other side, too. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> um, but do be aware that, that, you know, depending on where it is and how strong your jaw is and so on, there can be shifting. Right. Okay. If I wanted to get it filled with something, what would you what would your advice be on that? Well, this is the way I think about it. What would I rather have in my mouth? Would I rather have a hunk of plastic, which is good for maybe a decade, 15 years, not very long, really? Or would I rather have a good solid amalgam filling? And I have amalgam fillings in my teeth that were put in 60 years ago. Hmm. So I always choose amalgam. I don't like plastic in my mouth. I don't store my food in plastic. Why would I want it in my mouth? Yes, I would like to have the the filling at the very least replaced with with amalgam. I've, I've heard you speak about that before. Um, well, I'll let somebody else come through. I, I really appreciate you taking my, my call tonight. It's so nice to speak with you. I've been following you for so long. So um, I will get off the line. And happy Mommy's Day to, to everybody. Ah, <laughs> uh, green blessings. I am so excited to welcome Chad Woodward to our show tonight. Chad Woodward, astrologer, writer, body worker, student of anthropology, and psychology. For the past 15 years, Chad has been studying astrology, and he looks at it from a variety of different ways, psychological, archetypal, evolutionary, and Hellenistic. I'm not sure I know what that is. Chad graduated from astrologer Stephen Foster's, Stephen Forrest's apprenticeship program, where he studied for two years at the peak of his Saturn return. I'm a little unclear about that. His, was it Stephen Forrest's Saturn return or Chad's Saturn return? Chad has been writing astrological articles for the past 11 years, and they've been featured on Mystic Mama, Answers.com, and Planet Ways. In addition to astrology, Chad has a very deep interest in holistic health, herbalism, fitness, and a variety of other scientific and occult subjects. Right now, Chad is residing in Southern California, maintaining a busy schedule, um, but he is always happy to make time to help you through the archetypal language that we can read in the sky. Welcome to the show, Chad. Well, Susan, it's such an honor to be on here. I'm, I've been such a fan of yours for so many years, um, and I follow your work, so it's, it's really an honor to be here talking to you. Thank you, and thank you for bringing your unique perspective. Um, You know, many people, if you say astrology to them, they kind of think the daily newspaper, and here's your forecast for the day. I suspect that you have a very different take on astrology than that, and as you heard when I introduced you, I don't know what Hellenistic astrology is. So perhaps you could answer that two-in-one question. Yeah, for sure. 
So just to address the second question, Hellenistic astrology um, has actually seen a bit of a revival in recent years. Um, various astrologers, scholars that um, can actually translate Greek texts have been translating texts over the last 20 years. Um, so it's actually a growing field of reviving a lot of these ancient techniques that have been lost or or that academia or academics just haven't really been interested in, in preserving. So with the astrological perspective, a lot of these academic astrologers have been working to preserve these texts and, and bring them out and publish that work. So it refers to a, a system that was practiced in the Greco-Roman period, um, where astrology today actually really comes from. So Western astrology that uh, the, the zodiac system that we use, the tropical zodiac system and, and the house system, and they also use different systems as well, um, whole sign houses and, and so forth. But all of that derived actually from this Greco-Roman period. So a lot of the, the rules and a lot of the concepts came out of that period. And so it's actually really fascinating to, to read a lot of these ancient texts as they've been coming forth so that we can actually get a sense of how these techniques were actually used because a lot of it's been um, changed or misunderstood or even applied differently in, in modern times. Um, so so if, I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, what we, if we have a sophisticated understanding of astrology beyond the daily newspaper and we know that, the, that there are signs and houses and the zodiac, you're saying that that system of signs and houses and zodiac is Hellenistic astrology? Um, I would say that a lot of what is practiced today is, is a modern interpretation of, of what was passed on from that period of time. Um, so technically, no, because uh, the Hellenistic period had a very specific worldview that's very different from, from ours. Um, so a lot of the concepts and, and, and techniques are, are really specific to that time period. Um, but it's, it's interesting to study them as a modern astrologer because you get to see the history behind the, the art and, and where a lot of these concepts and techniques came from. Um, but, but really, it, it's, it's kind of the base of the, the zodiac that's used in the planetary rulerships, how... For instance, Saturn is associated with Capricorn or Aquarius or Mars is seen as the ruler of Scorpio or Aries. That rulership scheme actually came out of that time period, out of, out of um, that actual specific form of astrology. And so to, um, to address the other question, uh, so horoscopes at all. I think there's value in them, especially in, in keeping astrology alive and making it accessible to the public. And um, the kind of revival of astrology really coincided with the, with the popularization of horoscopes in, in newspapers back in the 1930s and 40s. So um, I think there's, there's still a lot of validity to horoscopes and, and understanding sun signs. But the kind of astrology that I do as an astrologer really um, works with a person's birth time and, and time of birth and location and their birthday overall and constructs what's called a natal horoscope. So we're working with that moment in time when that person came into this earth or had their first breath and using that as a symbol or a metaphor, if you will, or a story of how uh, that individual's life, uh, the potential that are available to them or the archetypal field that they're interacting with. 
And then with that chart, we also look at current cycles, so things like transits, which is where the planets currently are in relation to that chart and how they're interacting with certain placements. Um, we'll also use other techniques. There's a variety of different techniques from what's called secondary progressions, which is a symbolic movement in time where everything in the chart moves basically um, looking at it from one every day after your birth is one year of life. So there's this, these, that technique in solar arcs, and there's a lot of different predictive techniques that we use. Um, so it's a lot more complex than, than just a horoscope in the newspaper or just knowing your sun sign. And it can get even more complex than that. People like Vicki Noble um, add a variety of uh, smaller planetary bodies, series, and so mm. on. Yeah. So, you know, not limiting it to um, to just the uh, zodiac and the and the regular yeah. sign, having a little more uh, give and play in there, because as you say, uh, quite rightly, what astrology seems to me to be um, is very much like tarot. It's a place where um, our need, our very deep need for symbolic and archetypal information to um, reach through and to connect with us in this world. Yes, and that was my, my entry point into astrology was, was actually through the tarot. I had my first tarot reading in my early 20s. I was transitioning from 20 to 21. And before that, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to things like astrology or beyond the sun signs and horoscopes. And that year was really pivotal. I had my first tarot reading from my best friend's mother. She she spread my cards out on the floor of her living room and, and read my cards. And I was so amazed at how, how accurate it reflected what I was feeling and experiencing and going through. And so that actually sparked my interest in, in the occult or in divination and these ideas of synchronicity and um, how the universe communicates in, in all these different ways. And, and that year also led to this kind of serendipitous befriending of this woman that I went to school with, who then introduced me to turned me on to horoscopes and sun signs. And then I ended up meeting someone that same semester in school where uh, he showed me my chart and constructed my chart for the first time. And I became infatuated with him actually. And, um, our relationship didn't work out and I was left heartbroken over the summer. And, and then this, this following summer after that happened, I, I just started studying astrology and I picked up every book that I could find and read everything that I could read on it. And it was like this remembering that was happening. It was, it was so at that time for me, so bizarre that it felt like something that I had known or that was stored somewhere in my psyche. And I was just kind of, awakening or just remembering things and astrology came very fast to me learning it very quickly and it really took me actually a decade I would say until I felt really comfortable uh, practicing it and helping people with it but the, the techniques and the concepts and the whole worldview that it, it awakened in me or offered me was, was so familiar and something that was really nourishing and, and really mind-opening. It sounds mind-opening and heart-opening, too. Yeah. yeah. Like you really, you really stepped into something that, like, sprung those gates on your heart. 
yeah, yeah. I feel like before that happened, I was, I felt very shut down and, and um, had really internalized a lot of the, the messaging of the overall culture. Because to me, what I was, what I was seeing was that everything that I had been taught was different and that maybe life wasn't just a series of meaningless random events. Um, maybe, you know, the world wasn't just mechanistic and uh, that everything actually had some meaning in life in it and that there was, there was magic and that maybe my life had a purpose and maybe there is this sense of destiny that really exists for us all. Um, so that really was this awakening that happened where I saw that there was just a lot more going on than, than I was being told or that I had internalized by the, the overall society. How absolutely wonderful. So, can astrology help us deal with our individual problems? Can it help us deal with our collective problems? Can it can it help us open our hearts to what's going on? Yes, I think that ultimately what astrology could offer the world and can offer us as individuals is, is a different way of looking at our lives and looking at collective events. Um, I think that we're taught to look at things very literal, very much on the surface. And, you know, we look at an event transpiring and we just see it for what it is. Um, but what astrology suggests is that beneath this, this literal manifestation of things is this deeper layer of, of symbolic meaning. And astrology works with what are called archetypes, which are basically these constellations of meanings that surround these sort of core principles, but it's, it's always shifting and changing and, and also culturally specific. So these archetypes are not always necessarily universal. They may be universal human experiences, but they're interpreted differently based on where we are. Um, but using this understanding of archetypes, we can reframe what's going on. So for instance, in, in an individual's life, let's say that I look at a chart and I see that they're undergoing what I might perceive initially as a, a challenging cycle. Maybe it's involving the planet Saturn or Pluto. Um, and we might look at the surface and we might see that. And we might see this eruption of a certain kind of event that might be ch challenging or difficult. But understanding that archetype from multiple dimensions, understanding um, that that's just, that's just one manifestation of it, um, it gives us an opportunity to reframe and even look for opportunities in really challenging or difficult moments in our lives, or even moments of opportunity and growth where we can see what more can we do or how can we manage this or how can we look at this differently. Um, and I think as a worldview, it, it offers the modern world this kind of way out of seeing um, a dead end. I think it, it helps to inspire creativity and in ways of seeing that we can look at things differently. We can see more possibilities that we're not just limited to one way of the, the surface manifestation, but there is uh, a meaning behind what's going on. There's a symbolic dimension that is more complex than our initial impression. Yes. What then can astrology tell us about the pandemic? Was it written in the stars? 
Well, so 2020 is very interesting for astrologers. Um, many astrologers, myself included, we've been writing about 2020 specifically because of this lineup of uh, Saturn and Pluto specifically, but as well as Jupiter and, and early in January, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto were all aligned in this area of tropical Capricorn. And um, this Saturn-Pluto cycle has been pretty extensively researched by an astrologer named Richard Tarnas, who wrote a book called Cosmos and Psyche, uh, Intimations of a New Worldview. And it's a fascinating book. It's It's pretty dense and it's not an easy read, but he puts together a lot of these correlations between historical events and, and these planetary cycles. So his work has done a lot um, in the astrological community to really accelerate our understanding of, of certain outer planetary cycles and how they relate to social processes and social changes. So uh, 2020 was, has been looked at with some trepidation and, and some concern because uh, historically the, the combination of Saturn and Pluto has related to um, what Tarnas referred to as cycles of crisis and contraction specifically. Um, and what that means is that these two archetypes, Pluto and Saturn, are sort of amplified momentarily within this period of time uh, collectively across the world. And, and these themes begin to emerge in, in multiple ways, from art to political events to what's going on globally. Um, so we can look at these archetypes and, and we don't really know exactly what will show up. We, we kind of just know the archetypal meaning or the archetypal field that, that they And I want to stop you, stop you for a moment and ask you to explain what the archetype of Pluto and what the archetype of Saturn means, because we can't assume that the listeners know that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the planet Pluto is, was discovered um, in the 1930s. And one way that astrologers gather meaning of, of archetypes or the planets is through the synchronistic correspondence of the naming of that planet as well as collective events that are going on at the time. Um, and then also the, the mythology behind it. So we, we look at it through this synchronistic lens that there's some there's uh, a reason why it was named a certain thing and that it has an association with that mythology so so pluto is named after the the god of the underworld right um, from from mythology but it it has shown through practice um, and, and even at its time of discovery it was correlated with um, you know, the rise of fascism in Europe and the atomic explosion uh, the, the splitting of the atom and um, the unleashment of these sort of powerful forces that are beyond human control. So uh, the Pluto principle relates really strongly with this process of degeneration and change and decay uh, or deep evolutionary change and decay and destruction and um, is, is sort of perceived as kind of ominous. But uh, in it, from another perspective, we can look at Pluto as this archetype that relates to evolutionary transformation, really deep changes that are going on and, and forces that are really beyond human control that are very transpersonal um, in a nutshell. And, and then Saturn relates uh, to a lot of ideas, but uh, it, I would say one of its core principles is, is growth and maturity and the, the maturation process. Um, and then it also symbolically links to 
um, structures and systems and authority figures and all these archetypes of, of um, that are centered around working hard or consistently towards something and gaining material manifestation or building up structures and systems is kind of its, its some of its correlationships. Um, so when these two planets combine in relationship, we get this kind of fusion um, where lots of things kind of show up, but we see these kind of, one of the most interesting things actually I, I've been tracking is where dystopian novels are, are written at key points in these cycles. So either at the conjunction uh, or opposition phases, you need with the square. And what that refers to is a conjunction is like a new moon. It's where two planets are basically in the same area of the sky um, at, at the same time. And then an opposition is like a full moon where both planets are at 180 degrees from our perception here on Earth. Um, and so at key points in these cycles, um, uh, things like Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, it was written in, in the spring of 1984, the tail end of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, and all these really deep uh, dystopian themes of, of um, you know, the, the American government being taken over by this um, kind of fascist totalitarian uh, police state. And she wrote that in, while she was residing in West Berlin, and this was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So a lot of that atmosphere of, of what was going on in Berlin um, was really infused into her novel. Um, George Orwell's book, 1984, which is really interesting because that was the year that Atwood wrote Handmaid's Tale, um, he wrote this in 1948 under the Saturn-Pluto conjunction of that period. And that also correlated with the Cold War um, and then the, the cycle after that uh, in, the, in the 1980s correlated with sort of the completion of the Cold War. So there's an interesting correlation between uh, the beginnings of things and the endings of things and, and these processes that begin and, and sort of end and fluctuate alongside these Saturn-Pluto cycles. Um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World was published in 1931 under a Saturn-Pluto opposition, uh, Fahrenheit 451, which actually started as a short story um, uh, called Bright Phoenix, was written in 1947 through 1948, um, also under a the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that um, Orwell wrote in 1984. Um, so I like that kind of entry point of looking at how um, it, it's showing up in, in the imagination. Um, and then we see these correlations as well going on in the world. Um, and so uh, it's you know a pretty big big topic, but I would say that um, it, these are periods of, of immense um, you know contraction, conservative empowerment. These are themes that Tarnas had noted in his book, um, where you know things tend to take this more conservative trend politically, um, and. Uh, we see pandemics, for instance, the AIDS crisis was something that, that broke out in the early 1980s under the last Saturn-Pluto conjunction, uh, which then correlated with the Reagan, Reagan administration and Margaret Thatcher and um, even the implementation of a lot of uh, economic policies that are now, we're, we're seeing the results of these things today at the next conjunction. Um, happened at that time, and that was also sort of the, the ending and peaking of the Cold War in the 1980s. So as astrologers, we don't really know what will show up. We just know 
the archetypal field. We, we might look ahead at 2020 and go, oh, this looks like a time where we might be given a lot of restrictions. There might be a lot of constraint. This might be a period politically of, of some conservative empowerment. Um, and so kind of knowing that we can kind of, you know, anticipate certain outcomes that we don't really know exactly what crisis will emerge or what, what it'll actually physically manifest as. Um, but I would say in looking deeper at the meanings of these planets and looking at it from a different perspective, not just the literal manifestation. And I think these are really um, powerful, potent periods where we are collectively kind of forced and as individuals to really step up to new ways and, and building new structures and new ways of, um, of constructing our lives. And so the, the crisis part is that we're faced with these limitations. We're faced with this death and decay of, of systems and structures that we've come to rely on. So there's often a synchronistic correlation with these cycles and the collapse and the falling apart of certain uh, structures. But then also we see the emergence of new visions and new ideas coming forward. Um, so these are also periods of time where we as individuals have to figure out new ways of relating to society and, and making our way in the world. And um, sometimes that might look like, um, you know, a different way of working or, or making a living or um, another way of looking at Saturn too is that it's an archetype that really helps us individuate and really pushes us to become our own person and gain autonomy and self-sufficiency. Um, and that comes through its, its rulership of Capricorn. And then it also has rulership over Aquarius which relates to uh, the collective and community building and um, taking our individual voice, our process of individuation and contributing that to a larger conversation. So these are times where we might be forced to rely more on ourselves to become more self-sufficient, to become more empowered, and also to build new communities and to build new structures and um, to find new ways to orient ourselves and survive. Just what I'm seeing as well. Mm. Seems like people are being shown very clearly that they can be manipulated, be in fear, and mm. say, um, you know, mommy, daddy, God, take care of it for me. Right. Or that they can, as you just said, um, say, this is an opportunity for me to see what I can do for myself. Whether yep. it's growing some vegetables or getting some chickens or learning herbal medicine or checking out astrology. Because the usual way we do things isn't available to most people right now. Um, it's certainly a time when other things can come forward. Yep. I think of Saturn and Pluto and Jupiter as the big boys. Mm. When I when I want to get tough, I ask the big boys for help. Mm. And we have to ask ourselves um, 
are the big boys that we have right now the ones that we want? Right. Yes, yeah, I think it's a time where we're really yeah. deeply questioning um, the, yeah, the authorities, those that are in charge, where we're having to really look deeply, really look deeply into the heart of, of these, these systems, these institutions, and, and what needs to change. So this is definitely a challenging process, but it's a time of, it can be a time of awakening and realizing uh, what we need to do moving forward and, and having to confront that in a very real, very tangible way. Chad Woodward, how do people get in touch with you if they want more? Because our time is almost over. If they if they want more with you, they're going to have to go to? Yeah, so my website is cosmicmind.com, and that's with a K, K-O-S-M-I-C-M-I-N-D, so cosmicmind with a K.com. And there you can find my blog, uh, sign up for my newsletter, and link into my Instagram and Facebook, all from there. Oh, easy. Cosmicmind.com, and it's cosmic with a K, not a C. Thanks for making it so easy for us. Since we are to the last minutes of the show, I am going to ask you, what would you like to leave in the heart's and the minds and the psyches of everyone who's listening tonight. I would just say that my mantra is, is are you trusting? It's something that I always ask myself when I'm, I'm encountering something challenging or difficult. And so that's the message I'd like to leave. It's just, even when it's really hard, you know, trusting the unfolding, trusting what's showing up and, and, and trusting what, where it's leading you, even if it's uncomfortable. even if it's uncomfortable. So important. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chad. You know that one, yeah, of the, uh, one of the archetypal images that I use is that we are collectively reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. Mm. And so I thank you for weaving um, the archetypal language of the sky into this healing cloak and reminding us that um, we're in a time in which we can expand. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's very important to remember that expansion is part of the process that's going on here. So thank you for that for that weaving and Rebecca, delicious to have you back. Thank you for helping me promote the idea that herbal medicine is people's medicine. It's the medicine that's right outside your door. And thank you everybody who's listening for taking care of yourself and uh, for having green allies. I appreciate you all. Good night. Green blessings. Night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>